So I'll be reading from uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Daniel, chapter 2, the last of the major prophets. You'll find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, chapter 2. The purpose of these next eight sermons is to provide a biblical perspective to what we all see kind of happening in our country, in the world, and that's what feels like an increase in wickedness, an increase in evil. Um, that's probably the, the, the conservative view. There's a more radical view of what's happening, and that's that the whole world is out of control. Um, that the world is falling apart, America's disintegrating, the church is failing and losing, and this causes all kinds of people to panic and be anxious. Um, I've heard people ask me questions, uh, just random people who know I'm a pastor and just want to talk about God, and they almost immediately, if they're not... um, if they're unsure about life, they'll ask me, well, is this the end of the world? Are we in the end? I think we might be in the very end. Do you, do you know if the Antichrist is here right now? So what this reflects is just a, a great uncertainty, and I think uh, a, it lacks a biblical perspective and a, and a historical perspective as well. And I hope that in the Scriptures we will be able to see kind of what our attitude, I believe, as Christian people versed in the Scriptures, knowledgeable of history, how we should react to these times. I mean, there's a reason why we have in the bulletin every week a prayer request that uh, our country would return to God because we see increasing immorality. It's not that we deny that these things seem to be happening, but our response, our response should be informed by the Bible Whatever is being done right now is being done because God has ordained it. This was planned by God before the ages began. It's part of His master plan of redemption. And our response to any hardship and distress is what it has always been for the church. Confident prayer. Courageous, godly living. Because we know the end. We know our God. We know that He is powerful and righteous and good and just. And even from a historical perspective, just looking back at 2,000 years of history of the church, we today are healthier, physically healthier, just as a people, than any people who have ever lived in the history of the world. That's pretty good. We are older than any time in the history of the world. For most of history, until about the Middle Ages, Life expectancy was historically around 45. I would be an old man at 52. Now people are expected to live into their 80s, generally. We are more prosperous. The average American lives more abundantly than any average person ever in the history of the world. We are more free than any people who have ever lived. We can almost do anything we want. We are being purified. 
God has not left the church to wither. He answers our prayers. Here we are, worshiping him. We are growing. The American church is blessed beyond measure. If you grew up in Bulgaria and you wanted to go to seminary, where would you go? You would come to the United States of America. If you grew up in South Africa and you wanted to go to seminary, where would you go? You would come to the United States of America. We have the best seminaries. We have the best churches. We have the best preachers. We have the best schools. Everything Christian that you could want is blessed here beyond measure. And we're shining. Do not doubt that there's no influence of the church in overturning Roe v. Wade. Have we forgotten so quickly? We prayed for decades. And it seems that God has answered our prayers. But that's just history. That's not Bible. Even if times were really bad for the church, if we were being drugged into coliseums and impaled on sticks and burned for the entertainment of thousands of cheering, hateful people, we would still have every reason for confidence. So I'm not saying that things are not bad sometimes in our country, or that we don't see negative trends. That's not the message. The message is we have a biblical perspective that makes our response very different. The media, maybe pop Christian culture, would say anxiety, panic, hunker down, get ready for the end. There are real problems that we have to face, but God's Word is very clear. Things have always been bad for the church. Things have always been bad. And actually, looking through Scripture and looking through the history of the church, Things have usually been much, much worse than what we see today. Think of Noah. Think of Lot. Think of Elijah and Jezebel. Think of Rome and the Colosseums and the idolatry and the orgies. And we must never forget in the midst of our lives that our God reigns. He always has. He always will. As God's elect chosen before the creation of the world, we should never forget that our God reigns. So that was introduction to the text. Daniel chapter 2, I'll read verses 31 through 45. This is after Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He's threatened to kill all of the wise men unless they can not only interpret the dream, but tell him the dream that he dreamed. They said it's impossible. Daniel prays and the dream is revealed to him. So he's now standing before King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 
This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet, of, the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided, a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to one another, to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great, ki- a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. For us to, I think, understand the power of this dream, I mean, it's powerful in itself, but the power in the dream for the church, for the Jewish, the Hebrew people of that day, I think there's some context required. What was the status of Israel at this time? The ten northern tribes had been completely destroyed or exiled. Gone. Nobody's there. They've been replaced by a foreign people. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were basically just kind of existing, not as tribes anymore, um, united under Jerusalem. Jerusalem really stripped of any power at all. Uh, Many of the people of Jerusalem had been exiled, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Many killed. Uh, Jerusalem was basically a, a vassal city of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And in a few years, it also would be completely destroyed. The temple raised to the ground. The perpetual kingship of David ended once and for all, so they thought. Everything about what Israel was, all of the promises seemed to be failing. Where was the promise to David that he would have a king reigning forever? David and Solomon, their kingdom extended from Egypt to the Euphrates River, which is where Babylon is, by the way. And now it consisted pretty much of just an occupied city of Jerusalem. Nation had ceased, Israel had ceased to exist as a nation. And the history of Israel to the world seemed a disgrace. It was a failure. There was nothing wonderful at all about 
the nation of Israel, the people of God. It was a history of exile, of failure, of weakness, and of shame. And by contrast, you have the Babylonian Empire. This is the empire of empires. Babylon ruled the world. The smartest, the best, the most powerful people were Babylonian. So they viewed the Israelites, the Hebrews, as you can understand, as nothing and less than nothing. A defeated and insignificant people. The people of God. The people of God actually thought, the the, the Babylonians thought they were blessing the people of God by bringing some of them to the court to learn the ways of, of the really wise Babylonians and their king, Nebuchadnezzar. And certainly from a human perspective, the Hebrews were a defeated people and a discouraged people. They were wondering, are any of the promises that God made true? Is anything really true? Where was the promised land? We thought we were going to live in the promised land. We've all been exiled. Our land is taken from us. Where are the people who are more numerous than the sand on the seashore as you promised Abraham, our father? You promised David a king who would rule and reign forever. Well, there's a descendant of David at this point in time on the throne, but he's about to be overthrown as well. And there would not be another king. So they thought. Where was God? Where were all of His promises? And it's in this context that the book of Daniel is written, and it's in this context that this dream is dreamed. Nebuchadnezzar's dream wasn't for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was for the people of God. For Israel, for the church, for us. There was a word of great encouragement to the people of God at that time. A people who might have been doubting his goodness and control and his promises. Look at what Daniel says when he gets the answer to his prayer and knows the dream. Before this in chapter 2, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. The light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This was an encouragement even to Daniel, who loved God and believed in God and had faith in God. So let's look at the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Again, this was a dream, a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar by God for the encouragement of the church. And yes, Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to benefit from it as well, although he did not. Verse 32, The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Nebuchadnezzar, and by implication Babylon, is the head of gold, the kingdom that's the strongest, the most glor- glorious. And each of the kingdoms, we're told, are reduced in splendor. They're reduced in unity and in might. Yet they were still kingdoms that ruled the world. These four kingdoms have been understood really for all of church history to be the kingdoms of the Babylon, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Although that's really not the point. That's not the interpretation that Daniel gives. 
He doesn't say, here's the interpretation, here's all the kingdoms that are coming. He just shows the fifth kingdom. The point of the whole vision of the dream is the fifth kingdom. The interpretation is given and the main thing is a shocking and surprising turn of events. A stone crushes the statue that has been set up in his, in his dream. The stone that was cut out by no human hand, it struck the image on the feet and the whole thing tumbles and becomes like chaff in the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried all of it away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel explains, what is this? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is verse 44. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. I think my battery's dead. Maybe you can switch to that. Okay, thanks. So he interprets the dream in verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That's the rock. The rock that comes from heaven. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. We see that the head of gold was followed by the chest kingdom and the leg kingdom and the feet kingdom or whatever. This kingdom will never be replaced by anyone. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, this is still Daniel talking, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So the point isn't the exact kingdoms that follow. That's not the point of the vision of the dream. The point is that there will come a kingdom from God that's going to crush every human, earthly kingdom and empire. They will all fail. But one kingdom will last forever and it will grow. There's five things we learn from this explanation. First, the kingdom shall never be destroyed. The kingdom of God, the stone that crushes all earthly kingdoms, will never be destroyed. It's not to say that the earth will be filled with people who hate God's kingdom and try to destroy us. We feel that today. The church of God has always felt that. There's a great hatred of the people of God. It's either overt or covert, but it is there. The Romans hated the Christians much more than they hated the Jews. And yet, God used that great persecution for a great growth of his church at that time. And we've seen that nothing that is done on earth by any nation or any kingdom, can stop the growth of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ is still growing, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The kingdom of God is ruling and reigning over the earth. Certainly we pray, thy kingdom come for a reason. We want it all to be over. We want it to be completely fulfilled. And yet the fact remains, the church will not be left to another people. That's the second thing we see, that this kingdom will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
No one is going to conquer us and then take the kingdom. And this is a corrective for me as well. And actually, I was <clears throat> while I was preparing this week, uh, I was thinking these things and God was correcting my own heart as I think about how the church is maybe somehow lessening or failing. And I thought, no, that's not right. The church is the church. And I was so encouraged. Um, last night, actually, I was listening to Vody Bauckham, who preached on this same chapter, and I told Mary Kay, he's preaching my sermon. And he really was. We were preaching the same sermon, basically. We often feel like because the, the culture is so overwhelming in wickedness, and the power of the church seems so small, like the Israelites did in Daniel's day, that the church is somehow failing, or the church is growing apostate or impure, or it's losing its voice or it's shrinking, and it's, it's, it's not winning. And this is not true. We don't understand the church if this is our view of church. Peter had it right. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do we live in difficult times? Yes. Could it have been more difficult? And was it more difficult in the past? Probably yes. And yet we take what God, what situation God gives us, we pray confidently that his kingdom would advance, that the gates of hell would not prevail against us, and we courageously live godly lives. That's our response. And I thought Dr. Bauckham had a, a nice view of the situation. He said, imagine uh, going back in time 2,000 years, and you have 100 churches, each filled with 50 people. And then you fast forward to today, and you've got... 10,000 churches, each filled with 50 people or 100 people. But the problem is that 2,000 years ago, those 100 churches maybe had one apostate church. And now today, we have 10,000 churches, and it seems like 9,000 of them are not serving God. They're worldly. They're apostate in some way. Or if not apostate, they're at least preaching false doctrine. So the faithful churches look at the, the culture, they look at the church, and they say, oh, wow, we're just surrounded by apostasy. We're surrounded by false teaching. But what you don't see is that that rock has grown from 50 churches over 2,000 years to 1,000 solid, pure, godly churches. And it's continuing to grow. Yes, the opposition continues to grow as well. Look at Revelation but this kingdom will not be left to another people. Thirdly, we see that the rock breaks all other kingdoms and brings them to an end. It's verse 44. Shall break into pieces all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end. Why are they broken? Because none of the nations would kiss the sun. And the sun is angry. And he's going to destroy them. So it is that Daniel sees all the kingdoms of the earth vanishing into air like chaff. There's no nation on the earth that's godly. Nations aren't godly. The church is godly. America will be crushed. Every nation will be crushed. 
I love America. We should serve America. It's a wonderful place to live. It's not the church. All other kingdoms will come to an end. Fourthly, we see that the the rock will stand forever. The rock of Christ was despised indeed. When Christ was on the earth, he was despised and rejected by men. He was crucified. And it seemed to those 11 apostles and those few disciples who were left that after he was crucified, it was all over. They despaired. And yet now, 2,000 years later, the Roman Empire is gone. You can visit Rome and you can see the ruins, but the Empire of Rome is gone. And yet, what was said in Luke chapter 1 is true. Verse 32 and 33, that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will have no end. This is true. And this kingdom will stand forever. This kingdom speaks of the church of God. When we pray, thy kingdom come, the Shorter Catechism says we're praying three things. We're praying that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace, the church, would be enlarged in us and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the eternal kingdom would be hastened. In other words, bring it all to completion. And yes, God is doing all of that. Every bit of it. Not only that, but each believer is assured that he will stand forever with our Lord. And praise God. And fifthly, we see that it's divine. This kingdom is divine. It's a rock that was cut out of a mountain, not made by any human hands. In other words, God created this kingdom. This was foretold in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I must say, as maybe I should have said this in the very beginning, these sermons are not eschatological. I'm not talking about end times theories. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the Bible today. We see the kingdom of God today. Our view of the kingdom of God today. The mountain produced a rock and it crushed all earthly kingdoms. Calvin says, Daniel predicts the beginning of Christ's kingdom as a contemptible and abject object before the world. It was not conspicuous for excellence. As it is said in Isaiah, it was a branch sprung from the root of Jesse. When the posterity of David were deprived of all dignity, the royal name was utterly buried. The diadem trodden underfoot, as it is said. Hence, Christ first appeared cast down and lowly, but the branch increased wonderfully and beyond expectation and calculation, into an immense size until it filled the whole earth. So I believe the lesson we learn from this vision, from this dream, 
for Daniel and the Hebrews and Nebuchadnezzar and those who would listen is the same lesson we learn today. The nations of the earth rage against God. They always have. They seem overwhelming in their might and their power and in their fury. Read the book of Revelation. The beast is always it's always shown as this horrible, terrifying monster. And the people of God are constantly being protected, protected, preserved from his attacks. The church does feel insignificant in light of the greatness of these kingdoms. And yet we take courage that the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, rules and reigns. There is nothing that happens apart from his plan. And praise God for that. We should also remember two more, two more short points. We should also remember that the nation's nationhood was created by God. And it proclaims his glory. Government is from God. It's a common grace. God uses the nations of the earth to accomplish his purposes. There's no rogue nation that does something and God's like, oh, I guess we've got to deal with that. The nations are a backdrop upon which our creator king acts. The rock crushed something. Something was there that it crushed and that was ordained by God. All of the nations serve God, whether they know it or not. So we're not to look at this dream and think that, well, God came to rule through Jesus Christ, but before that, he didn't really rule the earth, the universe. That's not true. The whole Bible attests to the fact that Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, ruled the universe from the moment they said, let there be light. And he had a plan of redemption for a sinful people. He chose to bring the promised Savior and Redeemer from the line of Seth and Noah and Shem and Abraham. But before he had ever called Abraham, he still ordained nations in the earth. We see, see this in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where God says, Let's confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth. Acts chapter 17, 26. Paul says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and allotted and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This was common grace. It was not required for nations to exist. God gave the earth nations. It was also part of his plan of redemption. God is the ruler over every nation. I'm going to give you some scripture, just shotgun it to you. Psalm 86, verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, you are not, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Daniel chapter 4, the Most High, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
But in particular, we see that after Abraham, the nation of Israel was the Lord's chosen people, that he would display the graces of election, all of his promises of kingship. The Messiah would come from Abraham as well. They would have the prophets of God. They would produce an heir who would reign forever. And this is the ultimate reason for God's ordaining the nations, that they might proclaim the glory of God and that Israel would be seen as a God-honoring and God-glorifying nation. All nations today exist for that reason as well, to glorify God. In Revelation 5, John says, I heard every creature on heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Nations like everything else exist to glorify God. Last point, God does all that he pleases. Brother and sister, this is a great encouragement for us. When we see difficult times, when we see dark trends in our society, when we see a church that seems weak, we need to remember that this is God's church and he does all that he pleases. The world looks terrifying. Verse 31 of the chapter we read, Daniel 2, the image was mighty and of exceeding brightness and it stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The kingdoms of the earth The nations of the earth are frightening. They look powerful. And they are, from a worldly perspective, very powerful. All kinds of injustice prevails in most every kingdom. Daniel probably thought that the hand of God was not seen at all. Where is God? We've been exiled, our king is a puppet. Vassal to Nebuchadnezzar in Jerusalem. Nations and kings think that they rule. Psalm 115, verse 2 and 3. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is true today. The reality is that God rules over all, and compared to him, the rulers of the earth are as nothing. And he crushes them to fine dust. They are less than nothing, according to Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket. They are counted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. It is he who sits on the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. The tempest carries them off like stubble. So God rules the nations today. God owns the hearts of kings and its leaders. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Are you frustrated by our government? Pray to God. That's our response. Confident prayer. Courageous, godly living. Pray to God. 
Psalm 33.10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. There will be no plan of any nation, of any government, that will frustrate the work of God in his church. It's not possible. God sometimes uses nations against God's people, against the church, as a form of discipline. Isaiah 5 says he will raise a signal for the nations far away and will whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. He's portraying the the nations of the earth as a dog that God whistles and commands to do things. We also see that God turns the hearts of nations towards God's people at times. Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah would, would be fulfilled, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord of the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So the kingdoms of the earth will rise up in pride and arrogance against God's people. Read Revelation. This is true. It's always happened and it will happen till the end. But God always has all things in his hand. The church is not failing. The church is doing what the church does. God's providence is always at play to bring about his sovereign will. And he will use his people for his own purposes. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So we read Malachi this morning. This is the way the Lord corrected my own heart and my own soul. I seem to be coming to God constantly complaining, not praying confidently, not living godly life courageously, but more like a complaining prayer. And when I read this, I was struck to the heart. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. In other words, God, all this is going crazy. The world is turning evil and wicked. Don't you care? Don't you care? It seems like you're pleased that this is all happening. Is it because the end is coming? Is that the reason? All who are evil do good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. God says no. How else have you wearied him? By asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, I don't see any justice on the earth. Is there ever going to be justice? Certainly we need to pray for justice. But there's an attitude of the heart that questions God's sovereignty, questions God's providence. As opposed to confidently praying for goodness and justice to come on the earth. Certainly if. The rock is destroying and has destroyed every earthly kingdom. If it's going to be blown away and and become dust and chaff, then there's certainly no cause for God's people to be anxious. Exactly the opposite should be at play. We can have great confidence that God is for us because we are his adopted people. We are his church. We know God wins. 
So when the media says the world is ending and when pop Christian culture says this is the worst things have ever been, when your neighbors say this is the end of the world, I saw the Antichrist in the newspaper, just say stop, no. Our church, our society has problems. But it's been much worse in the past and God has blessed us. Believe the Bible. Our God reigns. Our God established all government for his own glory. And the church actually is in a really good place right now. We probably have never had it so good in the history of the world. Our response should be confident and faithful prayer and courageous, godly living, but mostly thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We're not being persecuted. We can pray as often as we want. We can own Bibles. We can meet together. We can meet every day of the week if we want to, right here. I can still say anything I want from this pulpit and not risk prison. No one's taking our property. No one's burning down our our homes and carting us off to some other country. No one's putting us in brick ovens and burning us to death. Our response, even to those things, should be confident and faithful prayer and courageous godly living. But now also, thanksgiving. God is in the middle of every detail of our lives. He's in the middle of everything that happens in government He's in complete control of every event, and the rock is crushing and will finally crush every hostile nation on earth. So let's not say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. This is our God. I hope you've been encouraged as my soul was in preparing this. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you so much that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that the rock of your kingdom crushes every earthly kingdom to dust. Lord, you have placed us in the earth at this time for these events that we might be a godly and courageous people for you. That we might pray confidently in light of scripture and in light of history and that we might be encouraged by your word and encourage others with the truth. Lord, we do see evil in our society We see what seems like an increase of immorality and a rejection of everything that is true and right and good. We pray that we'd be faithful and confident as we pray that you would bring justice upon the earth. That your church would would rise up and stand for what is right and true. And that each person would live as befits a child of God. As a son or daughter of the king who rules and reigns on high. Lord, encourage our souls. Bless your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.